Hello, 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 hello. I am Kimberly Cecil Jones and I'm filling in tonight for Aaron Biles. So welcome to Kernels of Truth. It's brought to you by Progress Kentucky, as you well know. This week we're going to cover all of the breaking Kentucky political news stories around the 2023 statewide elections. We'll also cover Andy Barr today. Yes, that Andy Barr, who won a legislative victory fueled by personal tragedy, unfortunately. And we've got a return amazing guest, a UK uh, law professor and democracy expert, uh, Professor Joshua Douglas, who joins Doug and Aaron a little bit later for a discussion about the state of Kentucky's democracy. And we'll wrap up with an, uh, an important call to action, okay? So, but first, Let's get down to business first. First, are you ready to turn Kentucky purple? I can't hear you. Okay, I thought that was right, that you said, yes, you've been ready. Okay, you've been ready. So how do we do that? Okay, this is what we do. We saw what happened on November the 8th. The GOP rode a wave of gerrymandered districts to bolster, yeah, to bolster its supermajority even further. And if we're ever gonna match up to the sensibilities of a Commonwealth who voted to uphold abortion rights in the political party that stands for abortion mm -hmm. rights, our state needs you to be active. Yes, the general election is over with, but there's still so much more work to be done. So if you want a Commonwealth that works for all of us, right? Join Progress Kentucky. Yes, join us and support our campaign to turn the Commonwealth purple. Follow us on social media and share out our videos, posts, and podcasts with your friends and family. Spread the word that we're tired of the GOP, ignoring the needs of regular folks in Kentucky, and we think our Commonwealth is worth fighting for. Most definitely it is. So now it's time to check in on our co-host and let all you know who and where you are and what does your protest sign say today and yes you that's looking at this or listening to this so that you made a comment in the comment section about what your protest signs says today and we want to read what your sign says as well so put it in the chat while we are sharing ours so first of all as i said before my name is kimberly cecil jones and i'm here in the great great city of louisville in our great state of kentucky and yes i'm still at work yeah yeah, it's retail time. But my particular protest sign says today, let 2023 be the year of democracy. So uh, I've got Doug with me today, as I like to affectionately call him, Dougie Fresh. Uh, what does your sign say today? Uh, yes, I'm Doug Price coming to you from Harrison County, Kentucky. You know, we're getting a new high school built here. Another good reason to move to Harrison County. Always got to have a plug for my county. My protest sign, I'm going to hold it up, says, why don't more people vote? We had 41.8% people vote in this last election, which means 52, almost 52% 52 of the people did not vote. That's just crazy. We've got to work on that. 
Most definitely we do. And also uh, just a little tidbit there. Did you see how uh, when the January 6th uh, people were getting awarded, they all did not shake Mitch McConnell's hand? Uh, it was so good to watch and see. I, I loved it. I loved it, right? So let's go head on and, and get to the news of the week. And we're not talking about the week, W-E-E-K. We're talking about the news of the week, W-E-A-K. So this week's big news, of course, is that Mitch McConnell has even less power today than he had yesterday. Yes, you heard me right. I did not miss my words. As the Democrats now have a clear majority in the Senate that Reverend Raphael Warnock won the reelection in Georgia. So happy about that because uh, Herschel Walker uh, just... We should have just remembered him as a great football player and not this asinine type of campaign that he had. But you know what? Trump was very much to blame for that, uh, forcing a horrible candidate in a race with this clear majority. Senate Democrats will have more ability to get things accomplished through the committees, including the judicial appointments and policy as well. But however, I do want to make this point. We will need to get through the GOP-controlled House, unfortunately. So despite more power in the Senate, we're unlikely to see very many Democratic legislative priorities moving forward. Why? In other words, Trump and McConnell news. And uh, Doug is going to bring us a story that will allow us to understand those statements I just made a little bit better. Thank you, Kimberly. Uh, I'm going to be putting some words in uh, Mitch McConnell's mouth. I title this a milk toast response to more Trump horrors. Recently, the former president of the United States, Donald J. Trump, wrote these words. So, with the revelation of massive and widespread fraud and deception and working closely with big tech companies, the DNC and the Democrat Party do you throw the presidential election results of 2020 out and declare the rightful winner? Or do you have a new election? A massive fraud of this type and magnitude allows for the termination of all rules, regulations, and articles, even those found in the Constitution. Our great founders did not want or would not condone false and fraudulent elections. Every president of the United States has recited the oath of office as the official start of the presidency. When it comes to Trump, the word that comes to mind related to Mitch McConnell is milk toast. The definition is timid, meek, or unassertive. Here's an example given by Dana B. Orr. Do you really want someone who is a milk toast, half-hearted candidate, or someone who will defend the Constitution with every fiber of her being. Mitch McConnell, Senator Mitch McConnell said these words. Let me just say, anyone seeking the presidency who thinks that the constitution could somehow be suspended or not followed, it seems to me would have a very hard time being sworn in as president of the United States. When asked by CNN, McConnell would not say if he would support Trump if he got the Republican nomination in 2024. 
what I'm saying is it would be pretty hard to be sworn in as to the presidency if you're not willing to uphold the Constitution. That's what I said, and I've just said it again. It's hardly a condemnation of the ex-president's spoken words. A true patriot would have said these words, and these are the words that I'm going to put into McConnell's mouth. The O for Office presidency is found in Article 2 of the Constitution. It contains 35 words and goes as follows. I do solemnly swear or affirm that I will faithfully execute the office of the President of the United States and will, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. This is what Mitch should say. Most presidents have chosen to place their hand on a Bible and repeat these words that have been repeated every time since the United States was formed. Hell, he doesn't even know how to hold a Bible. No, under no circumstances should he run for president. And if he is a president, I will not vote for him. But he cannot speak these, those words. He is weak. He is milk toast. Kimberly, I'll turn it back over to you. Is that really such a thing? Do people really eat milk toast? Is that, is that something? Is that a thing? It's probably really weak. That's probably what McConnell eats every morning for breakfast, milk toast. And why am I not surprised? I say this every week. I am not surprised at these folks. I really am not. And Trump, oh my God, let me just pass out right now. Uh, the most fraudulent, the most there's a lot of adjectives that I would like to say, but this is sort of like a family show, I guess. So I won't say those words, but um, it just seems like anybody that Trump uh, was backing had no actual chance of winning anyway. And um, he has no chance of winning in 2024 either. And as far as I, I made a little, uh, I made a little note right here that you know, he's talking about let's get rid of the Constitution. Do people really think he should be president? Doug Price? I think the leader of Peru just tried that. And uh, they, uh, they removed him, which is what they should do. Yeah, in, in this situation, um, as far as Mitch McConnell is concerned, and that's something on another day that we can talk about, but there's a reason why no one ever gives the adequate money to Kentucky to get rid of these jokers. Seriously, there's a reason, there's reasoning behind that. And um, doesn't mean you got to like it, but, you know, the facts are the facts, but Mitch McConnell, he never could really stand up to Trump. And, and I really don't think he's going to stand up to anyone at this particular point. What, what do you think, Doug? Well, I think since uh, Raphael Warnock won the, uh, the Georgia Senate seat, uh, really Mitch should just fade away to obscurity. 
the Democrats have a 51 to 49 advantage in the Senate. And that means uh, Mitch just lost a whole lot of power. And there's a lot of people second guessing him. Uh, apparently he has enough votes to retain the, the, the minority leader. But um, the thing that, that will happen, in my opinion, maybe a lot of that money that comes into him, that he is from corporations, that he is able to spread out to other folks, maybe he won't have that money now. And if he doesn't have that money, those other folks uh, who need money for their reelections are going to have to be looking someplace else. Exactly. And then there was uh, a notation that you had stated about most presidents that this comes from Liz Cheney, her tweet that you had uh, put up for the viewers. And it said, most presidents have chosen to place their hand on a Bible and repeat these words. They have been repeated every time since the United States was formed. You know what? People like Trump and Mitch McConnell, it must be some other kind of Bible that we are not familiar with because otherwise I think they would just blow up and explode because they're so evil. Um, but thank you, Doug, for that great reporting. That was some really, really good information right there. Thank you. So we're going to move ahead now to the elections in 2023. And it is getting a going, y'all. Yeah, getting a going. And um, our great governor, Andy, has filed. But what about the rest of the ticket, y'all? The rest of the ticket, right? As we mentioned last week, actually, uh, Colonel and State Representative uh, Pamela Stevenson announced her intention of running for Attorney General with Dan Cameron. No, don't get that look. She's not running with Daniel Cameron. We're just saying that Daniel Cameron, the oppositional person for Kentucky, is trying to put his hat in the ring uh, for governor. Now, uh, these constitutional offices will be up for grabs, and that would be the attorney general. And it's good to see such a strong candidate like Colonel Pamela Stevenson jumping in. And, of course, our great governor, Andy Bashir. But it's really, really like quiet so far. It's like crickets, like just silence, you know, so with the filing deadline for the statewide uh, elections, it's going to be January the 6th. What a day that's going to be. And um, there are a couple of things that I want to bring up about that. And one of the things is this right here. I have this timed light in my office, so I'll just kind of back up a little bit and come back. Thank you, ma'am. Thank you so much. Thank you, thank you, thank you. So, uh, let's say this. Austin Horn has a great article in the Lexington Herald Leader uh, pointing out that Matt Lehman, who ran against Tom Massey uh, here in Kentucky, uh, in northern Kentucky, matter of fact, is considering jumping in the race, okay? Perhaps treasurer, hmm, 
who knows some other names that have been you know just kind of floating in the atmosphere of the politicals is also uh the governor's right hand man uh rocky adkins uh you know we love him and it and it seems pretty unlikely that he would jump into the uh ag commissioner race which has a few republicans or you can say a few elephants already that are lining up. So someone has to file and who is that going to be? And apparently we've been hearing about Miss Kimberly Reeder. She's a tax attorney in Moorhead who has raised over, let me check my stats right here, $28,000 so far for her race for state auditor. And uh, it was also mentioned in the article that Sierra Inlow, uh, is a name that has been floated for Commissioner of Agriculture. Inlow is a veteran of Jack Conway's uh, gubernatorial uh, race against, in which he lost against Matt Bevan. So who's not going to be running, you may ask yourself. Well, so far, we see that it's definitely it's not going to be Neville Blakemore, who ran in 2015, and he was quoted saying this, if your last name is Bashir, you can win statewide. But if you don't have that, you're probably out of luck. We shall see about that. I think uh, it was a pretty hard race to win. Uh, and Andy won by about 5,000 and something votes uh, to be our governor. And it took a lot of work. It was a very, very aggressive campaign. Um, I was out there canvassing and doing phone calls, and it was like the most aggressive campaign that I've ever been affiliated with. But it was all worth it to get the governor that we got. So what do you, what are you thinking about that, Doug? Uh, yeah, I have some thoughts. I've looked at all of the candidates. I can give you a little more information on, uh, on some of them. The, uh, we talked about some who may or may not be entering the race. Let me toss a name out there. Jeff Young still has time to enter the race. And he might enter, I don't know, as a Republican or a uh, Democrat or a Libertarian. There are 18 candidates in the race for the governor's office. 18. That's got to be some kind of record. Uh, there are 12 Republicans running. And I know that's got to be a record, too. Uh, and, and there's still the specter of Matt Bevin entering the race. That's been rumored. And what? I was saying, oh, oh, yeah. oh, what? <laughs> You're talking about that. Matt Bevin that used to be the governor that really like trashed uh, the economy and just we're talking, uh, we're, we're talking about two different Matt Bevins, right? No, we're talking about the one, the one and only. Um, fortunately, there's just one, I, I would think. Uh, and, you know, I don't have any inside information, but you'd have to think that uh, if there are 12 Republicans in the race, there are going to be some people who are going to take away votes from other people. And uh, does Matt Bevin have enough people who think highly enough of him to not vote for Brian Quarles or Kelly Craft? Personally, I think the odds on favorite right now is the Ag Commissioner Ryan Quarles. Uh, he spent the last eight years, or actually not quite eight years, but as Ag Commissioner being out and about, and uh, he's fairly well known. 
uh, Kelly Craft's money is going to come into play. Right now, Governor Bashir has more in his campaign coffers than all of the other candidates for all of the other executive branch elections. He has a total of $4 million on hand. Uh, I'm going to title this next, my next comment, uh, Rumor and Conjecture, Conjecture Alert. A couple of years ago, it was rumored that McConnell wanted to step down after being reelected and to have Cameron appointed to replace him. The Kentucky Republican-controlled legislature passed Senate Bill 228, which would have allowed the Republican Party to nominate Cameron to replace him if McConnell retired. Supposedly, McConnell wanted Kelly Kraft to be governor. It seems as if Cameron backed out of the deal and now wants to be governor, and now McConnell has another one of his acolytes running against Kraft. The Attorney General's race is heating up. As Kimberly mentioned, Colonel Pam Stevenson has entered the race, and Republican Russell Coleman is also in the race. Coleman worked for Frost Brown Todd and then was appointed to federal courts. One would assume that Connell grease the wheels on that appointment. Coleman is a former FBI agent and former senior advisor legal counsel to McConnell, and he has almost half a million dollars in campaign in his campaign account compared to zero dollars at this point for Stevenson. That's reported as of yesterday. And how will Colonel Stevenson fare in the general election? She will need a lot of money to combat the power and money behind Mitch McConnell. Another connection to Mitch, Scott Jennings, yet another acolyte of Mitch, apparently is involved in this race on behalf of Coleman. His run switch, his firm run switch, helped launch Coleman's campaign, and Coleman's campaign treasurer is Emily with run switch. I know that because her email address is listed as Emily at run switch. So far, no Democrats have entered the race for the Ag Commissioner, Treasurer, or Secretary of State. I've heard that Michael Bowman intends to run for Treasurer again. Are we headed for a repeat of the 2019 gubernatorial election year when Andy won and all of the down ballot races were won by Republicans? You have any thoughts, Kimberly? I hope not. I hope that as far as the governor's race is concerned, um, yeah, money gets a lot of things, but you know what? Hate to say it, um, our very good friend of Progress Kentucky, Miss um, Amy McGrath, had money out the yin yang. You know, it takes votes, it takes mobilization, it takes organization. And money is not always what gets it. But you know what does get to me? Uh, I heard that uh, last night that over $90 million was spent um, on the campaigns combined of Herschel Walker and um, uh, Senator Warnock. So that's $90 million. Uh, don't know which one raised the most. Uh, it's really not important. 
but uh, $90 million. And, you know, that seems kind of crazy, doesn't it? It seems kind of crazy, but you know what? It, it takes money to get people out there. But I also believe that, you know, if you are really talking to the people and you visit every pocket of this state, I believe you have a chance. When people get to know you, you have a chance. And um, that's where I'm going to where I'm going to stay with that, Doug. That's where I'm going to stay. But real quick, we did mention Andy Barr in the beginning. So we've got a couple of minutes uh, to talk about this. But uh, yeah, we definitely don't like Andy Barr, not particularly as a person, but for some of the things that he has done. But remember, we're not monsters, okay? Dougie Fresh and how we're definitely not monsters. So uh, he got his Carroll Act through uh, the Dem uh, Dem uh, democratically controlled House. He did that. And Senate, demonstrating the ability of these institutions to do important bipartisan work despite Andy Barr ever okay demonstrating that type of support he did get the bill focused on researching the heart defect that tragically killed his beautiful wife carol now it just needs to be signed by the president i couldn't imagine that this pro health care pro compassion president who's lost his own wife so long ago wouldn't immediately sign the bill what do you think about that Oh, I, yeah, I, that. yeah, I think there's no question that he'll sign the bill. And, you know, I, I feel sorry for Andy Barr. That was a, a horrible thing to happen. And uh, uh, the, the bill, it sounds like a, a really nice bill. They're calling the, the Carroll Act, the, the acronym. I don't have it right here, but uh, I, I think that's nice. And hopefully it'll help other people that, maybe we're in the same situation and maybe it'll help to save some lives. That's really all I can say about that. Well, this is really nice to report because we're not against people, right? We are against what they do when they're doing wrong, but this right here is also right. So, you know, we give props where props are due, right? So, uh, but you know what? This is really what I've been waiting for, Dougie Fresh. I've been waiting for this like for days now. So right now we're, it, I'm so excited that uh, we're bringing to you Aaron and Doug's conversation with uh, Kentucky elections expert. Yes, Professor Joshua Douglas at the University of Kentucky. Um, for their discussion of the state of Kentucky's democracy, touching on the most recent elections, gerrymandering, and how to increase the number of voters. So Miss Annabelle, our producer is with us tonight. So take it away, Annabelle. And now really excited to bring you our interview with Professor Josh uh, Douglas. Professor Douglas is at, of course, uh, is at the UK uh, School of Law. Uh, and is a well-acknowledged uh, expert on democracy and election laws across the country. So we're excited to talk to him about what's going on here in Kentucky. Professor Douglas, welcome. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. 
Awesome. So yeah, we just came out of an election, right? I don't know. I'd be really interested to hear your thoughts on what you, you know, what you saw in the Kentucky midterm, uh, any kind of relevant stories or kind of developments that you think, you know, uh, inform our perspective about the state of democracy in Kentucky. Sure. So, you know, we're thinking about Kentucky specifically, as opposed to the nationwide storyline, which I think is also important. Um, but, you know, the Kentucky story of the midterms, um, is I think one that we saw slightly expanded access to voting. Um, you know, we this is the first uh, federal election where we had three days of no excuse early voting, and that's great. Um, uh, combined with you know somewhat voter apathy, at least if you look at turnout numbers, I think people expected the turnout to be higher. Um, it wasn't as high as expected. and uh, and I think there's you know some things to think about and some some stories to tell. I think, the ultimate, my takeaway ultimately is that, you know, progress was was good, but it's it's nowhere near done. And this, of course, these are the first elections held under these kind of new maps, right? So the, you know, the census came out, the Republican GOP supermajority. Of course, you're, you're a nonpartisan player. I want to make sure that's very clear. We are not a, a nonpartisan organization, but you are a nonpartisan expert. So I don't want to like, you know, color your remarks you know with our perspective and i know that you are kind of a bipartisan observer of this whole thing uh but yeah so what we saw is that the you know the gop supermajority created new maps there were lawsuits about those maps uh ultimately you know what the gop uh, came up with despite being you know vetoed by the governor you know that was what we what we uh decided our elections on for this most recent election what's your assessment of kind of how those maps performed what was the kind of impact of them we'll talk we, you know I'll, I'll i'll respond after you answer to to you know because we've, we've talked about this a little bit already uh but yeah what do you think happened I mean, I think the math performed as people expected, which is it helped to produce a Republican uh, further majority in the legislature. Uh, my cat wants to say hi. And, Wonderful. Uh, we welcome animal participation. Um, <laughs> and uh, you know, the, the age of, of after pandemic and Zoom, where you never know what happens on, on these calls with uh, people's pets and homes uh, involved. Um, so, you know, the, the maps, I think, perform as expected. I don't think the maps are why Republicans won the legislature. I think Republicans are going to win the legislature either way. Um, I think the size of the majority, uh, I think, is explainable in part by the gerrymandered maps. And, you know, it's interesting that the Democrats didn't even challenge the Senate map. Um, and, you know, I think arguably they should have as well uh, under the same kinds of arguments given that the Senate is now even more skewed heavily toward Republicans with um, the, the, the maps that are in place right now. Um, I think that the, the congressional map, you know, with the, with the congressional delegation going five Republicans and one Democrat, um, I think this probably would have happened under any map most likely, but what the map did was made it harder to have a reasonable challenger, uh, particularly in the sixth district here in Lexington. Um, and so, you know, the story of gerrymandering isn't just about the results. It's also about who runs. It's about people thinking, I've got no shot at, you know, this election, so why even bother? Um, and so, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a hard thing to measure, but I think the effects are clear that uh, the, the legislature is definitely skewed uh, more towards Republicans than I think they would have, under, would have been under a, a fairer map. And you, you know, you've been quoted as saying that those those maps are illegal, right? Uh, and I think there's you know a few different maps, and there's a few different kind of arguments to be made. Your point about the the Democrats not even challenging the Senate maps uh, is interesting because I, I live in Lexington, uh, and I live in 
the 28th district, uh, which, you know, a lot of growth in Lexington in areas that are included in the 28th, that growth is not reflected in a district that is reflective of my views or the views of the area that has been growing in Lexington, right? Uh, so we've got, you know, we are now in a very rural district, which of course with the 28th district now being, uh, you know, kind of in conversation because Ralph Alvarado is going to be moving to Tennessee. Uh, you know, the, we talked about this last week, you know, but you look at that district and despite the fact that, you know, a lot of growth in the areas uh, in Lexington, that district is now, you know, Bath County, Menifee County, Montgomery County, and Clark County. So vastly rural in, in terms of the overall landscape that district covers. And I think that's that's the model that they used, right? Is to, to cut out some of those, uh, much of Lexington added into some rural areas so they could overwhelm, uh, overwhelmingly hold as many districts as possible that have some Lexington in it. Uh, yeah, the, the map is a great example of what we refer to as cracking. Uh, you know, the two basic ways to gerrymander are packing and cracking. Packing being you, uh, you put as many, smush as many of the, the same voters in one district as possible, essentially give them a super majority, and then you can control all the surrounding districts. Uh, it's kind of what's happened a little bit in, in Louisville with some of these districts. Um, and then cracking is you have a group that is, you know, demographically similar and ideologically similar, and you draw a line just through them. So you, you crack them into various different districts. Uh, and I think Lexington is a great example uh, of cracking that's gone on. Um, you know, the second largest city uh, does not have the, the kind of representation one would think population-wise because so many of the Lexington districts are split up into other more rural districts as well. Yeah. So and that is definitely something that, you know, I as a voter, very disappointing that, you know, I went from Jared Carpenter's district to what is Ralph Alvarado's district, because, you know, I would like to see my views represented in, in Frankfurt. Uh, thankfully, at the at the House level, uh, Sherilyn Stevenson, despite being, I think, put in a, a, um, an unfair district at the House re, uh, redistricting effort, she hung on to that seat by 35 votes, uh, again, just showing how hard she works and her team works. But yeah, I think the, the House district, uh, House maps are similarly, you know, weighted towards uh, supporting the GOP. Uh, and and GOP it shows how much every vote counts or every 35 votes counts. And, you right. know, there's, uh, you know, a couple of years ago, there was an election in Virginia for a, a state legislative seat. Uh, and as went that seat went the control of the legislature and it came down to literally one vote uh we had a similar thing happen uh well, i think it was in new hampshire this past cycle uh where election came down to one vote and it, it you know dictated control of uh, i forget maybe in a city council but uh but these things you know do come down to very few votes sometimes you never know which ones are going to be and obviously you know that's not necessarily reflective of the kind of the the ideals of democracy right that these maps have been drawn in such a way but you know we haven't seen a lot of success legally challenging them so far. Uh, you know, I think there's an appeal happening right now. What's your assessment of, of kind of where the, that legal process stands? Yeah, so the, the Democrats challenged the state house and the congressional maps under the state constitution. And this stems from the U.S. Supreme Court saying that the federal courts are closed to claims of partisan gerrymandering. That is a map is drawn with politics too much in mind and that violates the U.S. Constitution. So litigants have gone to state courts using state constitutions all around the country, and they've seen some success. Uh, Pennsylvania Supreme Court, North Carolina Supreme Court, and the, the courts are latching on to language in the state constitutions that say that elections in the state must be free or free and equal or free and open. 
And so that's exactly what the, the Kentucky Democrats are arguing as well, that a map that is uh, so skewed, is drawn with politics so much in mind, uh, is not free and equal under the state constitution. Uh, now, the Franklin Circuit Court judge, Judge Wingate, issued uh, a very thorough opinion in which it's kind of really interesting. He basically said, yeah, these are terrible partisan gerrymanders, um, that the maps are unfair. Uh, and yet he said, however, as a, as a uh, trial court judge, I don't think I have the authority to rule them unlawful under the state constitution. You know, in, in my view, if you're the, the Kentucky Democrats, it's about as good of a loss as you can get. Uh, you know, they <laughs> lost the, the case at the trial level because the court refused to recognize the claim under the state constitution. Um, but Judge Wingate issued all of these findings about how the map is clearly a, uh, a, a gerrymander, um, discounted the state's expert, one of the state's experts, uh, as saying that the expert didn't re use reliable methodology, um, credited experts, other state experts, as well as the Democrats experts, uh, to say that the map is unfair. Uh, and so it's really a pure legal question. I know that the, the Democrats have asked the, have appealed to the Court of Appeals, but asked the U.S., uh, excuse me, asked the Kentucky Supreme Court to take the case and skip the Court of Appeals stage, something that the Kentucky Supreme Court can, and, and my guess is probably will do. Um, and then it'll be a pure legal question as to, um, you know, whether uh, the state constitution should be recognized as uh, a, a preventing gerrymandering, as giving force and scope to this free and equal clause of the state constitution. And, and let me just add, you know, we asked, we talked earlier about what's one of the takeaways from the Kentucky election. One thing I didn't mention was that uh, partisans lost at, uh, in the judicial races. That is to say, uh, the candidates who were really explicitly partisan, like Joe Fisher in Northern Kentucky, running for the Kentucky Supreme Court, lost his race. Uh, and, and that, I think, makes a difference in terms of how the Kentucky Supreme Court may view these kinds of issues. I think I think they are intertwined. That election and this gerrymandering case, I think, is intertwined. It's really interesting. You know, that's a good point. And, and we covered uh, the you know, judicial races uh, in previous episodes. But, you know, adding in that kind of amendment two and amendment one, it seems like, you know, there's kind of Kentucky is comfortable being conservative, but they aren't necessarily, you know, looking to muddy the waters in in the courts right you know you don't want partisan direction to our state constitution whether it's amendment one or amendment two uh and they don't want to see that kind of partisan uh you know rule of the day in the, in the courts as well so really interesting uh that you that you brought that up i know doug you've got some uh some ideas about or some questions about you know the overall landscape of voting so we'll turn to you now uh i just want a quick comment about joe fisher he ran it was a not supposed to be a nonpartisan race and he ran it as a partisan and he got beat. I wonder if he had run it as a nonpartisan, would that have made a difference? It very well could have, um, you know, and you look at the, the Joe Bilby, Phil Shepard race in Franklin circuit court as well. Um, Joe's a former student of mine, actually. And, uh, you know, I think a really good guy, uh, but that race in many ways became partisan as well. And, and um, I think the voters, you know, stuck with the incumbents who they knew and felt that, you know, had not been explicitly partisan on the court. Okay. To, to get back to the other thing that uh, Aaron just mentioned, I, I'm a person that really want more people to vote. And thinking about this past election, Kentucky uh, Secretary of State Adams predicted there was going to be a 50% voter turnout, which would have been a great turnout even though that still means 50% of the people didn't vote. It turned out we had 
is the last percentage that I saw. And there are a lot of organizations, both partisan and nonpartisan, political and nonpolitical, that try to get out the vote. They get a list from the Kentucky, uh, I guess it's the, I don't know if it's the Secretary of State or uh, voter registration. But anyway, they get a list that says these are people who have voted in the past. They're more likely to vote, maybe vote one way or the other. But what about those people who never vote? We've got 50, what is that, 58.2% uh, of the vote who did not vote, which means those people, if they voted, they certainly would have swung the election one way or the other, I, I would think. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, you, there's, there's lots of uh, inputs into what drives turnout. And, you know, turnout is, is notoriously difficult to predict and difficult to explain what happened. Um, I think part of the story in Kentucky was that it, people didn't feel like there was a major top of the ticket race that was competitive. I think that people didn't think Charles Booker had much of a chance. And so he wasn't really driving Democratic vote. What did surprise me was that um, Lexington and Louisville's turnout was down. Uh, and there seemed to be a lot of motivation surrounding Amendment 2, the abortion amendment, which I think in some ways maybe suggests that, you know, it, it really is top of the ticket candidates uh, who, who drive turnout. What I don't want people to say is that, well, we expanded uh, early voting and there it made no difference. I think that's absolutely wrong. You know, I, I think what, imagine what the turnout would have been had we not had the convenience of three additional days to vote as well. To me, the number one thing we can do to reach the non-voters is to uh, reduce our registration deadline. You know, Kentucky has one of the worst uh, registration deadlines in the country, 29 days before election day. And if you're not on the voter rolls by then, uh, you're out of luck. Um, and many people who are not habitual voters aren't thinking about whether they want to vote, you know, uh, 30 days before the election. They're thinking about it the weekend before the election or maybe the week before the election. Um, and in states that have same day voter registration or, you know, a registration deadline that's only a few days before election day, they have higher turnout. It, it's almost an exact correlation. Uh, so we know this works and they don't have fraud. Uh, we know how to make the technology work for it. Um, so I think, you know, the low turnout in part is explained by the registration um, deadline. We also still require an excuse to vote by mail, uh, excuse me, to vote absentee by mail. Um, you know, we do have those three days of early voting for no excuse, and that's great. Um, so I think it's a combination of, you know, something uh, that is salient at the top of the ticket um, and voting policies. Um, you know, we also have a lot of, we were, we were talking uh, earlier um, before we, we uh, came on about um, felon reenfranchisement. There's a lot of people who have regained the right to vote, but don't know it. Um, and the state needs to do a much better job and we as, as community in the community need to do a better job of educating people that they've regained their uh, voting rights as well. So, you know, it's, it's got to be a multi-pronged approach. There's lots of ways to do it. But I think one of the biggest things we could do is fix the voter registration deadline. That's going to have a, a measurable impact on turnout, I'd say, immediately. And then, so in those states, you say there's a, a clear correlation between the voter registration deadlines and, and turnout, which totally makes sense. Because, yeah, who's most people besides, you know, people on this podcast are, uh, are, are not thinking about the election 30 days out, right? Uh, so I, I would argue that, you know, makes a lot of sense to, to adjust those. But what's the prospect, right? Because that's something we would either have to get the legislature to do on their own. Would it be a, like a constitutional amendment or, or could, you know, could 
you know, Michael Adams as Secretary of State, does he have any bandwidth to do that or is he going to be have to be directed? No, it's got to be a legislative uh, fix. Um, and part of the problem was, is convincing the county clerks um, because the county clerks feel like they need all the time they want um, to, to manage the various process. Um, so I think it, it does, you know, in, in some ways it's a, an evidentiary hurdle, right? Proving uh, to the county clerks that other states do this and here's how we could do it in a faster way, right? Here's how you could streamline your process in a faster way. Um, and also, I think the legislature needs to be uh, uh, explained and, and uh, needs to be convinced, that is, that it's politically good for them, right? I mean, you know, we've had some real good success in uh, Kentucky election voting rules in the past couple of years, in part because we've combined voter expansions with uh, secure, so-called security or integrity measures. And so I think we need to find a way to, to couple um, a, a better registration deadline um, with you know integrity measures and also prove to the legislature that it's uh, politically palatable um, and and is something that they would want to you know that a, a shorter registration deadline could actually be good for the voting system and good for them politically. Well, Countess, any conversations you know of where that kind of conversation about how you can advance that type of a kind of just ease of voting, more voting uh, agenda, please count us in. I know that League of Women Voters is constantly uh, concerned about these issues as well. Uh, and, you know, we've had them on our show a number of times. But I do think there's a just nonpartisan approach that we should be taking. And especially right now with the Secretary of State who, you know, ostensibly, you know, likes to work in a bipartisan fashion to some degree, uh, his own like, you know, tagline of making it uh, harder to cheat, easier to vote. You know, it seems like this fits in that uh, in that. Uh, yeah, that I think right. And then there's also a voter education aspect, um, you know, on the policy issues, but also on candidates. Right. Um, I don't know if your listeners are aware of Civic Lex. Uh, it's an amazing organization uh, that I'm on the board of here in Lexington that had a, a great website, Lex.vote, um, that, you know, for every local candidate. So you could go and figure out the candidates running for coroner and what they wanted. And uh, I used it because I didn't know all of these various candidates. And, and those sorts of things need to be really uh, promoted more in the community, that can help the engagement uh, process as well. People understand why it matters. Yeah, yeah, that's absolutely true. And I use I use Civic Lex as well. Like really, really useful stuff. Uh, good information to share out. Uh, but uh, I think that's about as much time as we can take. I know you're a busy uh, guy, and we appreciate you sharing your expertise with us uh, this this evening. Uh, and uh, you know, thanks so much. This was great. Thanks for having me. All right. Bye. Thank you, Dr. Douglas. What a great interview. I'm proud of y'all. <laughs> that I'm was proud fun. Of you. Yes. So much information. It, it'd be impossible to unpack it all. But uh, some, just some, some gems of wisdom and um, expertise uh, that we can carry on and also to understand exactly what has happened. So uh, I appreciate you guys and we appreciate Professor uh, Joshua Douglas and we hope that he'll come back on with the show even though he is at University of Kentucky. Eh. But uh, you know, I'm here in Louisville. This is uh, L, University of Louisville country, I'm sorry. But, uh, you know, uh, we got to do our calls to action. I, I wish the interview was a little bit longer. I was really learning a lot and I was taking some notes, right? So our call to action now is take action. Yeah, 
take some action. Why don't you please? Um, what we're going to be doing, tell the GOP and the state Senate leaders to act on the medical marijuana. Okay. Yes. 98% support legalizing medical marijuana in Kentucky, but despite the important executive order, which is essence decriminalizing medical marijuana in Kentucky, but you still need to get it legally out of state, which could be a bit challenging. So we need the state legislator to act. Yes, the legislature needs to do something about this. The news broke this week that the legislative effort will begin this session in the Senate as a reminder. Last session, the House passed a bipartisan bill, but the state Senate has been where hope goes to die uh, traditionally in our Commonwealth. So it is critical, yes, critical, that we increase the pressure on Kentucky's GOP Senate supermajority leaders, Robert Stivers, Damon Thayer, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You know who they are, right? Um, so that's where you come in. This is a call to action. This is where you come in. We've launched an online action. And so far, 50 folks have taken action to send an email to their legislator, as well as the five GOP supermajority. Um, do you really want to call them leaders? But I guess, okay. So we need to top 100. So we need to flood their inboxes. So please take action right now. It's quick, it's easy. Then follow up on your action with a social media share or an email to your like-minded friends and family. Anything you can do to spread the word matters, okay? Everything matters at this point. You might feel like you're not doing enough. Anything that you can do is much, much appreciated. So we are back next week and Aaron will be back as your host. So come check out the show. Make sure you spread it out to everyone that you know as well. There was some great information given today with Aaron and Doug and uh, Professor Douglas. So Progress Kentucky is a nonprofit organization registered with the Kentucky Secretary of State, organized as a 501c4, is affiliated with the Indivisible Project and the Commonwealth Alliance Voters Engagement, otherwise known as CAVE. Now, Progress Kentucky's goal is to educate, organize, increase voter turnout, and advance a progressive agenda through civic engagement. Production this evening was by our very own lovely and talented Miss Annabelle Nagel. We love you, girl. You keep us straight. And thank you to Nate Orshan, our very own Nate Orshan. And you can find more information and listen to more of his music because he does the theme song. And you can check him out at natosongs.com. That's N-A-T-O songs. Dot com. And of course, if you miss us, you can go back and see us on YouTube. Uh, we're on Instagram. We're on Twitter. We're on Facebook. Go to Progress Kentucky. You can even go to our website, progresskentucky.org. Okay. If you miss, um, you can also do audio podcast. Okay. 
There are some simple times that you can't do it, but it's available on Apple, Google, Spotify, and wherever you get your podcast. The logo and some graphic content was done by Couchfire Media. Go check them out at couchfiremedia.com. Look, you've made it over the hump. It's Wednesday. Yes, two more days to go in the field that I'm in. How about eight more days to go, but till the next off day, but guess what? You've made it this far and you know what? Do something nice for someone this week. You will be amazed at how it would make you feel. And isn't this the season to be giving, to be nice, to have kindness in our hearts? This is the season. And the reason is that we can show our love and compassion for one another. So uh, great night tonight. Uh, Like I said, Aaron will be back next week. Thank you to Mr. Doug Price uh, for his also always thorough news and to Annabelle once again, and also to you. Give yourselves a hand clap. We made it through the general election and we've got a long way to go, but we can do it together. All right. So same bat channel, same time, and we will see you next week.